The Carleton College Convocation Program is a weekly lecture series that brings fresh insights and perspectives from experts in a variety of fields. The program has a rich history dating back several decades. The selected convocation speakers assist the liberal arts mission of centering thoughtful conversations within education and beyond. Family Weekend. My name is Grace Colburn and I'm a sophomore statistics major from Bainbridge Island, Washington. I'm sure many of you are as excited as I am to welcome your parents and other family members to Carleton this weekend. Today I have the honor of introducing my dad, Greg Colburn, an associate professor at the University of Washington's College of Built Environments. My dad publishes research on topics related to housing and homelessness, and notably is the co-author of the recently published book, Homelessness is a Housing Problem, How Structural Factors Explain U.S. Patterns with Clayton Aldern. His research has been, focused, or has been uh, featured in The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Economist, Bloomberg, and National Public Radio. He holds a bachelor's from Albion College an MBA from Northwestern University, and an MSW and PhD from the University of Minnesota. He also serves as co-chair of the University of Washington's Homelessness Research Initiative and is a member of the National Alliance to End Homelessness Research Council. Prior to academia, my dad worked as an investment banker and a private equity professional. Following this career change, my family and I moved to the Seattle area where we saw the severity of and problems associated with homelessness firsthand. In Seattle, my dad has been heavily involved in efforts to address the housing and homelessness crisis. In his work, he investigates the root causes of homelessness and tests the validity of conventional beliefs surrounding homelessness. Today, he will be providing a summary of the statistical analyses and key arguments he makes in his book Homelessness is a housing problem. Please welcome my dad, Greg Colburn, to Carleton. Good morning, all. We appreciate the Seattle weather to welcome us uh, from the West Coast. Um, thank you, Grace. I've done about 80 book talks, and that's my favorite introduction that I've, that I've received. So it's, uh, it's awesome to uh, be with you up here. So I'm gonna um, start with a few um, general comments before I get into um, the narrative of, of the book here. And um, you know, the first thing I wanna do is thank Carlton. Uh, you know, as parents, you go through the college search process and you're thinking about all these higher order issues in terms of academic reputation and teaching and professional development. And, and then when you drop your kids off, you're like, oh, I hope they have someone to eat dinner with. And so I wanna thank the administration and faculty and friends and coaches and teammates and all the people that have welcomed Grace. It makes us feel really good to know that she's uh, found a good spot here. I also wanna bring greetings from the University of Washington. Uh, if you're a sports fan, it's the center of the college football universe this weekend as we host Oregon and college game day is gonna be there. Last weekend, the center of the college football universe was here in Northfield, the big win over St. Olaf. We watched the fourth quarter streaming. It was awesome, it was an exciting game if we have any football players in the uh, in the um, chapel today, congratulations. Um, I do wanna share, uh, Carleton has an awesome reputation at the University of Washington. Uh, when, I, when we were doing the college search process, my dean um, was asking me, she said, well, you know, how's your daughter's search process going? I said, well, she's thinking about Carleton and a couple schools out east, and, and she said, I hope she goes to Carleton. I said, well, why is that? And she said, um, she's been at a few universities over time, she said, Carleton students are always incredibly well prepared for graduate school. And she said, the best letters of recommendation I've ever gotten for students have been from Carleton students, which speaks to the effort and attention that faculty members here uh, provide to the students. So thank you. Thank you for that. The last thing I want to talk about personally uh, before I get into the talk is, is a life lesson. And um, don't worry, there's not life lesson 38. We're not going to go through all these. There's only, there's only one. But life is long and unpredictable. I will say I'm 51 years old. Had you said 40, 30 years ago that I would be standing here at Carleton giving this talk and I'd have a daughter here, I would have said that there's no chance. There's a reason for that. This is a picture of uh, Green Lake, Wisconsin, July 6, 1973, which happened to be my first birthday. 
the handsome guy on the left is me. What you don't really see because of um, photo technology is we zoom in. All of these, these are my cousins, by the way, and there were three more that would arrive later on. We're all wearing St. Olaf College t-shirts. So I have multiple generations of people who've gone to St. Olaf. My, my grandparents met here, my grandpa went to seminary, he was a professor at Luther Seminary up in St. Paul, and he concluded his career uh, back at St. Olaf where he taught in the religion and history department. So when I was a little kid, we were in Northfield all the time, and I never once stepped foot on this campus. My grandparents are actually buried here at Northfield um, Cemetery. And so when, when we uh, were going through the process and Grace announced that she was going to go to Carleton, it was, it was really kind of a fun and entertaining uh, event for our family. And my uncle, Dave, who lives in Seattle, uh, big Dave Nelson, great St. Olaf name, um, he sent me a note and said how proud he was of Grace and how excited he was for her. And he said, we just got a report from the U.S. Geological Survey that there's been seismic activity in the Northfield Cemetery. <laughs> so now I'm sure my, my grandpa isn't with us anymore, but um, while he would have loved to have Grace go to St. Olaf, I know he would have been thrilled because he cared deeply about academics and, and education. And so I know he would be really thrilled that she's getting an awesome education here. So. Turning to the, to the topic of the day here, uh, as Grace mentioned, we moved to Seattle in 2017. And as someone who studies housing and homelessness, I quickly got involved in um, conversations in our community about the crisis. If you haven't been to Seattle or San Francisco or LA recently, um, the level of, of um, homelessness and kind of despair is, is pretty staggering. And it's really highly, highly unfortunate. And, as someone who, who thinks about this and, and as someone who thinks about markets and the interaction of policy and markets, I quickly came to the conclusion that we as a community, that includes people who write in the Seattle Times, elected leaders, community leaders, just people walking around, didn't understand what was going on and what was driving this crisis. And in the absence of a clear explanation of the crisis, multiple explanations flourish. I call it playing whack-a-mole. One day it's drugs, one day it's mental illness, one day it's poverty, one day it's laziness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the problem with that is that if we don't have a firm understanding of the driver of this crisis, it makes it really hard to respond in an effective way. And as citizens who are just walking around saying, well, we spent X million dollars, the problem's gotten worse, obviously this isn't working, and we throw our hands up. And that then makes it much more difficult to make the level of investments uh, that we need to end this crisis. So the purpose of the book was not necessarily to break a lot of new ground research-wise. We've kind of known in the academic community for about 20 years that there's a strong relationship between housing market conditions and rates of homelessness. But it was really to take that information, layer on our own research, and translate this for a general audience of readers. And we've been really pleased that it has gotten uh, a lot of attention around the country. I've been to, I don't, I don't know how many states, um, talking about this book, which is really encouraging and really sharing the message about what's fundamentally driving this crisis such that we can uh, focus our time and attention and resources um, towards, towards ending this crisis. So for those of you who are students, if you go to graduate school, especially in the social sciences, you'll spend a lot of time thinking about causation, taking class in causal inference, causal inquiry, what causes uh, something to happen. In the social world, causation is hard because human beings are complex. That's just a fact. And homelessness, while I've never experienced homelessness, I haven't experienced housing precarity. I've talked to a lot of people who have and interviewed them. Each story is unique and it's highly, highly complicated. All sorts of factors come together pr to produce this outcome. And so when we think about the question of what causes homelessness, there are a lot of different ways of potentially coming up with that, uh, with an explanation or response to that question. One of them is we ask people who are experiencing homelessness, why are you homeless? So each jurisdiction in the United States every January does a point in time count, which is in essence an estimation of the homeless population. So the first time I did this was in Minneapolis. It's done in January. And so you're walking around December or January 25th in Minneapolis at two in the morning. It's a very, very profound experience. If you haven't done it, I highly, highly recommend it. It's a huge service to the community. It is also puts things in perspective. And so as part of that point in time count, we'll ask people, why are you homeless? And people will give us very blunt and honest answers. My boyfriend beat me up and I ran. I drank too much. I got in a fight with my roommate, she kicked me out, and now I don't have a place to live. I got divorced, and now I don't have a place to live. And so we, we publish these things and we honor those explanations, and the Seattle Times gets a hold of them and publishes this and says, here's the causes of homelessness, and I kind of scratch my head. 
Who am I to tell someone experiencing homelessness that that's not the cause of their homelessness? That's certainly not my position. But I also fundamentally do not believe that divorce is the cause of homelessness. My wife, Jen, is here right now. I, at some point, she's going to say, why do you keep talking about us getting divorced? We're not getting divorced, by the way. But the point is, is that if we were to get divorced tonight, neither of us would be homeless tomorrow. So the context in which all these things happen really matters. Really matters. And so what we try to do in the book is to honor these explanations, but draw a distinction between what we would call precipitating events and what would be a root cause. Getting in a fight with one's roommate is a precipitating event. And that might lead to a catastrophic series of events resulting in homelessness. We would call a deficit of, of affordable housing and uh, uh, unaccessible housing a root cause of the crisis. So the way that we draw, uh, or to highlight this for you, is to use, uh, I think this is a matter, maybe we have some English professors here who could help me. It's a metaphor and analogy, one of the two. But um, imagine a game of musical chairs. 10 friends, 10 chairs. We start the music. Everyone walks around. The leader pulls a chair out. We now have nine chairs and 10 people. Music stops, everyone scrambles for a chair, and in this case, Mike loses the game. And Mike had recently sprained his ankle, was, was on crutches. So if ESPN was there and, and filming this and said, Mike, why'd you lose the game, what would he say? Had a bad ankle. And everyone would nod. Yep, Mike had a bad ankle, therefore he lost the game. If we take a step back and ask the question, why didn't Mike have a chair? It's because we didn't have enough chairs. If we had 10 chairs, Mike would have found one, he might have hobbled over, it may have taken him longer, but he would have found a chair. What happens when we have a deficit of chairs or a deficit of housing is that people who are vulnerable in some way, shape, or form are gonna lose the game. This is exactly what's happening in San Francisco and Seattle and Los Angeles and Boston and New York and Washington DC right now. When housing is really expensive and there are very few vacancies, if you're vulnerable in any way, you're gonna lose that game. And so what I say in Seattle is, uh, we have a terrible, terribly tight housing market. And when we think about Amazon importing tens and hundreds of thousands of workers every year, highly compensated people, it's like playing musical chairs with Usain Bolt, if you're a track fan, fastest man in the world, Jamaican sprinter. It's gonna win every time. The Amazon workers are gonna win every time when housing is scarce. And so when we see Joe on the side of the street, we say, well, of course, Joe's homeless, he's mentally ill, he's addicted, he's poor whatever the case may be, what we're missing is the, the broader structural context in which we don't have sufficient housing and therefore, if you are vulnerable, you're gonna lose. And that's the argument that we're making in the book. So what I don't want you to do is leave here and say, Greg doesn't think drug use is a problem, which some people have done, which is not a correct interpretation of what we're talking about. At the individual level, drug use, mental illness, and poverty are absolutely causes of homelessness. We could fill this room with research demonstrating that. But what's interesting is that those conditions produce homelessness in some contexts, like in Boston, and not in others. And that should cause us to say, what's going on? So the question we pose in the book is, why do rates of homelessness vary so widely throughout the United States? Seattle, for example, has five times the per capita homelessness of Chicago. And the reason we ask that question is, uh, is to really say, if we can understand the fundamental um, drivers of regional variation, it should tell us something about the fundamental nature of this crisis. And we can then um, devote our time and energy and resources towards that fundamental explanation. Commonly, people will say, well, if drugs, mental illness, and poverty cause homelessness, if we have more people with those conditions in a city, we'll have more homelessness. That's a perfectly logical explanation for regional variation but it turns out it's not true. So it's a book about cities, not about people. And this doesn't mean that person-focused research isn't important, it absolutely is. But this is really a book saying, what the heck is going on in Seattle? And the thesis is that tight housing markets accentuate vulnerabilities. And then these individual factors that we all talk about and think about and read about in the newspaper are the sorting mechanism. They identify the people who are most likely to experience homelessness. And then that leads all of us to potentially an incorrect assumption about the causation because who do we see on the street? The people who are vulnerable. Therefore, we equate the vulnerabilities with this outcome. This might be pretty small for those of you in the back, but um, the gist of this slide is just to demonstrate for you that there is variation in rates of homelessness. One of the complicating factors in this is some jurisdictions count at the city level, New York City, for example, while other jurisdictions, Hennepin County, which is Minneapolis, they count at the county level. 
Because homelessness is more pronounced in the urban core, city-based counting will produce higher per capita rates. Counties will be lower because you're including suburban locations. So we can't compare King County, Washington to New York City because that's an apples to oranges comparison. But if we compare city to city, what we'll see is there's about a five to one relationship between New York City and Indianapolis. So we're not talking 20 or 30% difference, we're talking about five times. This is massive variation. When we move to counties, um, the numbers are lower because we have the suburban phenomenon, but the same dynamic exists. It's a five to one relationship between Cook County and, uh, I don't have my glasses on, uh, LA County is the highest. So that's the, that's the variation we're trying to explain in, uh, in the book. So the logic that we pursue is we take all the conventional explanations for homelessness and we test using very basic statistics, um, does this help us understand regional variation? If it doesn't, we cross it off and we move to the next explanation. And if there are economists or statisticians in, in the room, we personally didn't do complex models in the book because people don't understand them. As soon as you say coefficient, people start to nod off. But there is ample, we've done our own and there's ample research if you're so inclined to, to identify the fact that housing costs always emerge, even in very complex models, as a causal driver of, of homelessness. But these bivariate um, graphs or figures that we show are, are pretty compelling and they tell, they tell an interesting story. So um, to orient you, you're gonna see a few of these. Uh, the x-axis or the bottom axis here would be the variable that we're testing, in this case, poverty rates. That would be the percentage of people below the federal poverty line in, this, in a county or a city. The y-axis is the per capita rate of homelessness in that jurisdiction. And each dot represents one of those cities or counties each year between 2007 and 2019. So what's interesting here, and for those of you who have who've taken basic statistics, R squared is a measure of variation explained. As that number gets closer to one, it's a more powerful explanation. As that goes to zero, it's just dots on a page. So we see a modest relationship between poverty and homelessness here, but it is, somewhat surprisingly, in the opposite direction of what we would assume. We know that poverty causes homelessness. We will never dispute that. But cities that have the highest poverty rates have lower rates of homelessness. So the dots in the lower right-hand corner are cities like Detroit, Cleveland, St. Louis, Baltimore, cities with the highest poverty rates in the United States, who have far lower rates of homelessness than exceedingly affluent cities like Boston, Seattle, and San Francisco. So the problem in Seattle is not that we have more poor people. In fact, we have fewer poor people than a lot of places in the United States. So homelessness thrives amidst affluence, not amidst poverty, which is a total head scratcher. Serious mental illness. No doubt, as I said, serious mental illness, serious mental illness increases the uh, risk of experiencing homelessness. Uh, this data and the drug data is all at the state level. Uh, the federal government collects this and it's better at the state than the local, but it's the same logic. This is rates of serious mental illness in every state in the nation in each of the year in our sample. And what you'll see is there is zero relationship whatsoever to rates of mental illness and homelessness. There are mentally ill people in Chicago and Cleveland and Detroit and Baltimore just as there are in Seattle and San Francisco and not at disproportionate rates in either place. The consequences of mental illness are certainly different in Seattle than Chicago, but it's not that we have more mentally ill people. That's just categorically false, even though that's a compelling narrative. This is uh, serious, or uh, substance use disorders. Uh, there are people using drugs in every city. And this is when people start to get a little angry with me. People want this to be a drug problem. And when I make the opposite argument, I get all sorts of angry emails, including one to the University of Washington provost when they said, how dare you use public funds to pay this guy's salary? This really triggers people. It really triggers people. And part of it is because they're frustrated at seeing open drug use in the streets of Seattle, and I understand, I understand. That, that can be true, that can be frustrating at the same time that we can have a structural understanding of this crisis. They're not mutually exclusive. So this is drug use. Um, throughout the United States, what you'll see is zero relationship between drug use and, and rates of homelessness. And so when people challenge me on this, my response is, if you fundamentally believe that this is a drug crisis, you need to explain for me why West Virginia doesn't have a massive problem with homelessness. It's the home of the opioid epidemic. There's ravaged communities in that state, but they don't have anywhere near the rates of homelessness of other cities. So, are drugs a precipitating event? Absolutely. Do we have a drug problem in Seattle right now, a fentanyl crisis? We absolutely do. But I say, if I had a magic wand and I wish I did and could end all mental illness and all drug use tomorrow, we would still have a problem with homelessness in Seattle. 
It might manifest itself differently and look different, but we'd still, the fundamental problem of, of lack of affordable housing still exists. The other point that's super important, and we have lots of research to demonstrate this, is the causal arrow goes in both directions. So mental illness and drug use certainly cause homelessness, no doubt. We also know that homelessness causes mental illness and addiction. We're creating a behavioral health crisis by not housing people. And I say this, and it's not a joke. If I were experiencing unsheltered homelessness on the streets of Seattle, I would medicate. It wouldn't be red wine, which is my go-to medication right now. We know that it's a coping mechanism, and that if you have zero hope, that people end up using substances. And the rates of trauma and abuse that, that people experiencing homelessness are exposed to, it is not a surprise that if we leave someone on the street for a year that they develop uh, mental health issues. It's just a natural human response to, to being in trauma. So while, while prevalent, these, these explanations don't really hold water. Race. We can't talk about homelessness without talking about race. Black, brown, and indigenous people are three to four times overrepresented in the population of people experiencing homelessness. But what's interesting is the demographics of your city don't explain rates of homelessness. Chicago has a much higher uh, black population than does Seattle, but has far lower rates of homelessness. So race doesn't cause homelessness. Racism causes homelessness. Discrimination and in racial injustice in multiple systems, education, healthcare, housing, labor market, all of these things produce these disproportionate outcomes and explain why black people are three or four times overrepresented in the homeless population in Seattle. Black people are also three or four times overrepresented in the homeless population in Chicago. So these individual explanations don't help us understand why Seattle has five times the homelessness of Chicago. So next is local context. What is it about our community? Greg, we're doing something wrong. We're producing this crisis. First one is weather. If you leave with one data point today, I would ask that if you're at a cocktail party and someone blames the weather in Los Angeles for homelessness, you could say, it, that's not true. Okay? It is a convenient narrative. I hear this all the time on the West Coast. If we didn't have moderate weather, we wouldn't have homelessness. Greg, LA is warmer than Chicago, hence, therefore, more homelessness. And I'll say that is true. It is warmer. But what about Boston and New York, two of the highest homeless populations in the United States, which are very cold in January? You're also ignoring Miami and San Antonio and Dallas and Phoenix and other warm jurisdictions that don't have high rates of homelessness. So it's an easy and compelling narrative that I hear all the time, but when you look at the data, it doesn't um, hold up. Weather does play a role in the policy response. So I was just in New York two days ago. New York shelters 95, 96% of the people experiencing homelessness. They have a huge shelter system. So visible homelessness is less in New York and Boston and DC than it is in West Coast cities. And part of that might be because of harsh winter weather. But total rates of homelessness bear no relationship at all to rates of homelessness. Greg, people are moving here because we're really generous. I hear this all the time. I first heard this in Minneapolis when I was working on my PhD and, someone, and, and people were blaming Chicago for Minneapolis's homelessness problem. Well, you know, it's people from Chicago. I said, oh, really? So we studied that and we didn't find any evidence. In my first meeting in Seattle, someone said, well, you know, we're a magnet for homelessness, Greg. And I said, oh, that's interesting. That's what Minneapolis said. Where, where are your people coming from? California. I said, okay. So then I'm in, I've been to California more times than I can count. And they said, you know, we're a magnet for homelessness because we have warm weather and generous benefits. So well, it can't be because you're shipping your people to Seattle. You are, they... I said, where are your people coming from? Texas. We include a story that was in the Washington Post about Middletown, Ohio, who believed that they were a magnet for homelessness. Everyone believes they're a magnet. I'm not a physical scientist, but I, and I, but I think I understand how magnets work. Everyone can't be the recipient. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And the reason why we know that these things are not true is we have ample evidence, research evidence, to demonstrate that. The best report that just came out after the publish, uh, uh, publication of our book was from um, colleagues at the University of California, San Francisco, the Benioff Institute for um, Research on Homelessness. They did the most comprehensive research on, this, uh, on homelessness in the state of California and found that 90% of the people who are experiencing homelessness in California are from California. Is there an anecdote to the contrary? Sure there is. And do we write newspaper articles about that person? Yes, there is. But generally speaking, this is a homegrown problem. Mobility among low-income people falls, or I should say mobility falls with, with income. 
state to state. Why? Moving is hard. When we moved from Minneapolis to Seattle, it was hard, and we had every advantage under the sun. New job, didn't know anyone, had to find a house, new schools for the kids. Now imagine doing that if you have no resources. And so when people say in Seattle, Craig, why don't they just leave? And I'll say, and go where? Topeka? How are they gonna get there in the first place, and then if they do get there, what are they gonna do? Social networks are important to all of us. They become increasingly important the less resources that you have. And so if you have a family member who's the only one who can take care of your kids when you're working in Seattle, are you gonna to move to Topeka for cheaper housing and, and more generous benefits? No, it's not the case. The other problem is, is that we'll have journalists walking around and they'll ask people, where are you from? If someone stopped me on the streets of Seattle and say, Greg, where are you from? I'd say, I'm from Minnesota. I've lived in New York, I've lived in Chicago, I've lived in Minneapolis, I've lived in Seattle, but I consider myself a Minnesotan. This is where I was raised. I still, still cheer for the Vikings. But if I experience homelessness tomorrow in Seattle, it's not a mobility story. I've lived there for six years. It's something happened and I had a cascading events and now I'm experiencing homelessness. So this, these narratives are super prevalent and frankly troubling because they make uh, understanding the, the drivers of this more difficult. Politics. Um, so uh, when Trump was president, he got in a big fight with Gavin Newsom, who's governor of California, and, and Trump was blaming Democrats for homelessness in California. Newsom was blaming the federal government for stepping back from um, funding low-income housing over 40 years, which is true. The federal government has stepped back. But neither of those explanations really hold water. If we want to blame Democrats, that's fine, and Democrats aren't blameless. But generally speaking, Democrats run cities in the United States. In our sample, which is the 30 largest metro areas, 85% of the time a Democrat was in charge. So if we want to blame Democrats, we would then need to understand why Democrats have not produced a homelessness crisis in Chicago and St. Louis and Baltimore and Cleveland and many other places that have been run by Democrats longer than I've been alive. So there's more to it than, um, than these simple explanations. So as you may have guessed, we get to our final um, category of explanations here after crossing off a whole bunch of other ones. And um, what we start to see is some more explanatory power here. And I joke, no one's gonna give us a Nobel Prize for this slide. This is rents and rates of homelessness. Where rents are high, homelessness is high. Dun, dun, dun. We've known this in the academic literature for some time, but people are really resistant to acknowledging this relationship. A related variable is vacancy rates. This is rental market vacancy rates. 5% is kind of the neutral point for, for rental market vacancy rates. Below 5% would suggest you have a deficit of rental housing. When vacancy rates get below 5%, homelessness is high. And so when people get agitated or they're angry, they'll push me on this and I'll say, give me an example of a city that's really expensive with low vacancy rates that doesn't have a problem with homelessness. And then I see people kind of looking up and I'll say, I'll save you the time and energy. There isn't one. There isn't one. So is it a perfect predictor? No, but it's pretty darn good. If you just give me the rents and vacancy rates of a city, I can tell you with a fairly high degree of confidence if you're gonna have a problem with homelessness. So the question then becomes is, we should wanna know then why do some cities have high rents and low vacancies? Is it because a bunch of people are moving there? Is this, can we blame Amazon for this in Seattle? Partly, massive tech boom, massive wealth boom. If you combine Microsoft and Amazon, it's one of the most rapid economic booms probably in our nation's history. San Francisco's had one that's been longer. Seattle's has been really, really quick. But what's interesting is when you plot population growth, and so when we think about supply and demand for housing, population growth is, is a driver of housing demand. More people moving, greater demand for housing. When you plot population growth and, and rates of homelessness, there's no relationship, which I thought I'd messed up these data when I, when I ran this. But when I went in and looked at all these little dots, what I realized is there are a bunch of fast-growing cities that have not had the same issues that Seattle have. Charlotte, growing like crazy. Phoenix, Austin. The Sun Belt is growing as fast as Boston and Seattle, but not having the same experiences with housing crises. So what's going on? What's going on is that we ignored, by only focusing on that, the supply side. So I know you probably just came in here to get out of the rain and now I'm throwing Greek letters at you, so I apologize. But the idea of supply elasticity is pretty fundamental if you've taken Economics 101. And so, you know, imagine, um, just to illustrate this for you, if the price of water bottles, or water, what, bottled water, goes up 10 times tonight, what's gonna happen tomorrow? People who make this are gonna, one, they're gonna pop some champagne and say, this is awesome, and then they're gonna make a bunch of these. They're gonna to go to two shifts, three shifts, and we'll just see production supply would increase pretty quickly. When the price of housing goes up, if it goes up 10 times tonight in Northfield, what's gonna to happen tomorrow? Nothing. It takes a while to build housing. 
we need land, we need a permit, we need, you know, we need a contractor, we need financing, all these types of things. So generally speaking, it's a somewhat inelastic good. We also know that city to city, there's big variation in rates of, of um, or in elasticity. Some places are more elastic, meaning they build more housing. Other places are inelastic, meaning they don't build much housing. The two drivers of elasticity are topography. If you have mountains and water, it's harder to build more housing. Makes sense. And the second is the regulatory environment. How easy or difficult is it to build housing? So a friend just sent me a, a note recently. It's 700 days to get a permit for, to build housing in San Francisco right now. And I'm not anti-regulation. I, I think regulations have an important role in society. But people are dying in the streets and we're spending two years to permit housing. I think there's a reasonable middle ground between adequate regulation and ensuring that we're building housing that we desperately need, that we desperately need. And so when you think about challenging regulation and challenging topography, San Francisco is exhibit A. It is the most inelastic housing market in the United States. You layer a tech boom on top of a really inelastic housing market, what do you get? A big problem, a big problem. So if we plot some cities based on their population growth and their elasticity, elasticity above one would be that you are elastic, below one would suggest that you're inelastic, not building enough housing. The bubble in the upper right-hand corner is a really interesting quadrant, which is the Sun Belt. These are places that have grown very quickly, but they've actually built a bunch of housing. They have very elastic housing supplies. And part of that is that they sprawl. They don't have any topographical constraints, and Texas, generally speaking, has a pretty limited regulatory environment. So I'm not suggesting that that is what the entire nation should, um, should copy, but what I am suggesting is if you build housing, you can accommodate growth, and they've done that. The bottom right corner is the perfect storm for housing and homelessness crisis. Rapid population growth, really inelastic housing supply. The numbers in parentheses are the rental market vacancy rates. 3% is super low. Seattle's been sitting in the threes for a long time. That has a huge, it puts huge pressure on rental costs. And if you lose your housing, finding housing is incredibly, incredibly difficult, which is why we have a massive crisis. And what's frustrating about Seattle is we had a 15-year head start. San Francisco went through this ahead of us. And for the most part, we kind of pat patted ourselves on the shoulder and said, well, at least we're not San Francisco. And now we kind of are. And so what's interesting about going around the country, I was in Indianapolis last week, it's fun to talk to those communities because they're on the front end of this. And I can say, don't do what we did. As your population grows, you need to ensure that you're building sufficient housing so that you don't end up in 10 or 15 years saying, oh, shoot. I wish we'd done something. Because getting out of this is way harder once you're in the midst of this. LA, San Francisco, and Seattle have massive, massive challenges around housing and homelessness. And the investments that will be needed to fix this are going to be immense. And the question remains whether we have the political will to do that. And I'm, I, I, that's an open question at this point. So I'm gonna wrap up with a few points here and then hopefully we'll have time for a little um, Q&A. One of the things I hear all the time is, Greg, we spent $100 million on this, the problem got worse, therefore $100 million didn't work. And I think that's the wrong analysis. What we're not thinking about is the counterfactual, which is what would have happened had we not made these investments. Generally speaking, our investments, whether in LA or San Francisco or Seattle, have been insufficient to the scale of the problem. So I was at UCLA at a conference and they just passed HHH, which was a billion dollars for homelessness, and the problem got worse. And people were complaining, and I was on this panel and I said, well, you're complaining about a billion dollars not working and you have a $50 billion problem. That's like telling a doctor that antibiotics don't work after taking two days of a two-week course. Doesn't mean antibiotics don't work, you just didn't have a sufficient dosage. And that's what's going on in our cities. And so what happens is we then say, well, these investments don't work, these interventions don't work, therefore let's abandon them. And that is the absolute wrong interpretation, even though we read about that every day in newspapers and, and in media outlets uh, all over the country. These operating investments also are a response to the crisis. We wait for someone to end up at the door experiencing homelessness, we have a crisis response system, we have shelters, and we say, here you go. We have not intervened upstream. We've responded to the crisis, we have not intervened upstream to prevent this crisis from happening. We need more housing construction, we need a lot more housing that's affordable for people with lower incomes. Without that, we will continue to have this crisis and it will continue to get worse. And I'm really fearful, and I say this in Seattle, we might think 2023 was the glory days. In 10 years, this might be far, far worse than what we are experiencing right now, and it's not good right now. One of the questions people say, well then, who's responsible? Should it be private market development or public market development? 
And what I say is, it's like an exam, it's D, all the above. We need everything. We need private market developers to build lots of housing, and ideally multifamily housing. We need to be denser, we need to go up, we need to change land use. We also need to acknowledge that the private market alone cannot fix this. Building housing for people who can only afford $200 a month in Seattle, there is not a private market solution to that. So it's funny, with this talk, I've been accused of being a shill for corporate interest and accused of being a socialist. Same talk. I, there's nothing wrong with socialism, but I don't believe saying that there's a role for the public sector in providing housing for people with low incomes is socialism. You may disagree. The point is that we need all actors in society uh, involved in this. I fundamentally believe that. So the goal of the book was to hopefully pull attention away from Joe, who's sitting on the side of the street, and really focus on the structural drivers of this crisis. And the reason why that's important is and I see this every day when I'm in Seattle. If I walk by Joe and say, I feel bad for Joe, but Joe made some poor decisions, I can go about my day and feel good about myself. If instead I see this Joe's outcome as uh, a confluence of structural factors over time, that then indicts Greg Colburn and all of us in this problem, that we as members of the society have a responsibility. And that's a little scary because these structural solutions are expensive and they take political will and they're difficult. It's much easier to just blame Joe. And I fundamentally believe that if we continue to blame Joe, we will not end this crisis. And in fact, it will get much, much worse. And I fear that's where we're going. And so one of, the, one of the final pushbacks I get from people is people say, well, Greg, Joe's a mess. I'm not convinced housing is going to help Joe. And I'll say, you know why I'm confident that it'll work? is because we've done it over and over and over. Housing first and related interventions have been demonstrated with, with lots of research to be very effective in ending homelessness. The federal government, about 13, 12, 13 years ago, said we do not want men and women coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan to experience homelessness at the same rates that the Vietnam generation did. And that's good politics. Republicans and Democrats stood up and did that. And what did we do? We funded housing and services for people who needed it. And what happened? We cut veteran homelessness by 50% in 10 years. It's a, it's a remarkable achievement that doesn't get anywhere near enough attention. And when people say that this is a problem that can't be solved, that is categorically false. You just did it. It took political will and resources. So the question is not and should not be, do these interventions work? The question is, will we extend this logic and, the, and these programs to a broader population of people? And to date, the answer to that question has been no. And we're living with the consequences. So thanks so much for being here on a rainy day. It's really an honor and privilege to be here. And I look forward to, uh, to your questions. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, Greg, for being here. And like Greg mentioned, we're going to have Q&A in just a moment. Just a couple of housekeeping announcements to make. It is family weekend. Thank you for being here despite the rain. The rain is doing its best to wreck it. Let's not let that happen. There will be changes, however. There will be adjustments. So please uh, go to Great Hall. Go to Great Hall if you haven't registered. If you haven't registered, please go to Great Hall. You'll get a lanyard way better than this one. And a lot of information, delicious baked goods. There's a photo booth and some games and so forth. So please go to Great Hall. To do that, if you haven't already, go back again. Why not? Uh, in let's see, other things. Register. Stay tuned for updates. Check the Carleton College Family Weekend uh, webpage for updates. Next week's convo speaker is going to be Adam Minter. Adam Minter is a columnist with Bloomberg Opinion, where he writes about emerging markets, technology, waste, and other topics. His most recent book, Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garbage Sale, excuse me, Garage Sale, is a deep dive into the secondhand economy that thrives around the world. As for Convo Luncheon, usually about this time I'm begging for people to attend. We are full. If you RSVP'd, if you RSVP'd with me in person this morning, you're, there's space for you at the table. Otherwise, I'm afraid we're full today. Uh, that is it for announcements. Enough of me. Let's have questions. Oh, my goodness. I figured we'd have a lot of them. Let's start here. Hi, my name is Eric. I'm a junior political science major from Seattle. It's wonderful to see you here. A big issue in Seattle politics has been that of single-family zoning. Seattle is consistent mostly of single-family housing. I was raised in a single-family house. Does your work provide a lot of comments on this policy issue? And if not, where, you thought, where are your thoughts on, on where this stands? Where is the role of density in solving this equation? Thank you. Uh, thanks, Eric. Awesome question. Uh, the single-family zoning is uh, arguably one of the most challenging political impediments to meaningful growth here. 
And so when I get angry emails, um, single family zoning is usually one of the reasons. So Seattle, um, as Eric indicated, is zoned 75% single family. And so it is illegal to build multifamily housing on three quarters of, of residential parcels in the city. And Seattle is a global city, like it or not. And so what happens is we lay our tech boom on top of this and say, and you can only live in one of these 25% of the parcels. That's it. Is there any surprise that we have massive, massive increases in housing costs? Now what's interesting is people get really angry about that. So I was speaking at Seattle Rotary and I sat down and I saw this guy giving me the stink eye. He was probably 80 years old. He was not happy with me. And he said, if you get your way, there won't be any families in, in Seattle. I said, oh, are you, are you talking about land use? He said, yes. You wanna turn this into New York City. I said, well, I used to live in New York City. There's strollers everywhere. People are procreating in New York City, I assure you. <laughs> but then, so we kind of went back and forth and at the end he said, but that's not what we want. And I said, now we're at the root of the issue. And what's interesting, and given that you're a political science major, the politics around um, political ideology are super interesting. My favorite example is in the Wallingford neighborhood, which is right near the University of Washington, 2016 election cycle. In the front yard, there is a Bernie Sanders for president sign, signaling their federal um, political ideology. Right next to it was a sign that said no up zones, which means we don't want to change our land use. This is 180 degrees diametrically opposed. And so what political scientists have found is that people get more conservative, small C conservative, the closer you get to home. DC, go Bernie. On my block, nothing's gonna change. And so there's a great book, not to assign homework, but it's called Neighborhood Defenders, written by Katie Einstein, who's at Boston University. And Katie did this, this is her doctoral dissertation at Harvard. She went to um, planning meetings in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when they would propose multifamily housing. And what happens? It's at seven o'clock on Tuesday night, you invite neighbors from Cambridge, we're gonna put up multifamily housing. Who shows up? It's people my age and my color who are single family homeowners and say no. If it's bath time, you got little kids, you can't go on Tuesday night. If you're working two jobs, you can't go on Tuesday night. And if you're not wealthy enough to live in Cambridge, you're not even invited. And so in the name of democracy, the city council says, well, seven people showed up and they all said no, so we're not gonna have multifamily housing. And this happens night after night after night, city after city after city, year after year after year, and we end up with this really screwed up housing system. So there's this interesting discussion now in terms of how do we think about the democratic process, but also creating neighborhoods that are accessible for more people. Because right now that democratic process is, is per perpetuating exclusion and it makes it really hard to create the density that we fundamentally need. So Seattle will be denser in 50 years, it, it will. And I say we can do it gracefully or we can do it kicking and screaming. It's probably gonna be kicking and screaming, but it, we're gonna go up because we, we have to. Great question. Hi, thank you so much for your talk. Um, my name is Etta, I'm a junior economics political science major. I'm also from New York, so these questions are a bit New York focused. Sure. Um, I have two of them. The first one is, I know in New York we have a huge problem of um, private industry investing in luxury housing, which then sits empty as investment properties. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how to incentivize private investment into affordable housing. And then the second one, again, New York focused, uh, Manhattan is sinking currently. Uh, so like you talked about topography and places where you really can't see elasticity in the housing market. And what do you think about cities like New York that have homeless problems, but we really can't build more housing? Um, great question. So the first one is, um, is investors. And, and I'm gonna extend your, you said Etta, is that? Etta, thank you. Um, so there's a, there's a category of questions that deal with um, people buying uh, luxury units and they're sitting empty. The same dynamic can be held for um, Airbnb, um, Blackstone buying up single family homes to rent. So there are these corporate actors that are, that are intervening and, and being very active in the housing market. And I would say depending on the jurisdiction, they have a greater or lesser impact. If you're in Vail, this is a huge issue, huge issue. Um, in Seattle, what I say to people is we could outlaw foreign investment and we could outlaw Airbnb and we'd still have a housing crisis. Is it helping? It sure isn't helping. Is it the sole cause? No. The, sole, the primary cause is just this fundamental uh, demand supply imbalance. And so I think it kind of depends on the situation. New York is just so massive. Uh, is it an issue? Yes, it's probably not the primary one. Um, but I think to answer your question, the vacancy tax is one that a lot of jurisdictions are looking at, which is if you're gonna own a home and leave it vacant, you're gonna pay. You're gonna pay dearly. And so we've seen some places start to impose that, and I think we'll see a lot more of that because people are concerned about this, this kind of uh, scarce resource sitting idle. Um, second question was? 
Oh, New York sinking. Yeah. Um, I wish I had an answer to that. Um, there, you know, there are, well, I was in New York two days ago and there were a bunch of housing people talking about it. And, and generally speaking, they actually put a poll up and they said, where should we build housing in New York metropolitan area? And very few people said Manhattan. It was suburbs, Westchester County, it was Staten Island, which had relatively low levels of density. And so I think the pressure in New York City is gonna be outside of, of the little island of Manhattan, because um, it's relatively dense. It's by far the most dense city in the United States, by far. Um, but New York has capacity. It can, it can fit a lot of people. It's, um, but, but probably not in Manhattan. And, and then obviously we've got climate change and we've got all these other issues that, that really complicate the housing issue, which we could have another talk for an hour on that. Thank you. And I think we have a gentleman over there, Jana. There he is. Oh, oh it just got answered, okay. Uh, hi, Chris from the Wallingford neighborhood. <laughs> um, Was it your sign? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so people talk about rent control these yep. days. It seems like it's the easy answer to reduce housing costs or con constrain housing costs, but does it produce the opposite effect with you know uh, people not wanting to develop and vacancy not really coming up? Yeah, rent control is um, probably the hardest question I get. Um, and depending on the audience, so I gave a talk in Chicago this summer for the National Association of Apartments, which is basically the landlord organization, and every question was about rent control. As you can see, you're not for rent control, are you? Literally, I sat down for breakfast, and the woman said, who are you? And I said, I'm Greg Kelvin. She said, oh, you're a speaker. She's like, are you going to advocate for rent control? And I said, well, let me, let me get through my talk first. So my answer on rent control is... Um, Actually, Minnesota is going to be a really interesting place to follow because both Minneapolis and St. Paul proposed different forms of rent control. St. Paul's was more restrictive. Minneapolis's was a little more lax, which is basically anti-gouging. You can't go up 7%. St. Paul's was much more restrictive. And so housing researchers are, are coming to Minnesota to really see what the effects are. The concern is that the more strict St. Paul re policy regime will constrain housing production and therefore make some of these issues more challenging. What I say to developers and landlords is, um, you should not be surprised if the pitchforks come out. If you continue to raise rents 10% a year, you're gonna have people saying, I'm fed up. And one of the mechanisms that the mob will use is rent control. The other path you could take is, we should build more affordable housing, and that might involve taxation and more resources and all that kind of stuff, such that we're not relying solely on managing the private market to determine affordability or to deliver affordability. And that's tricky, that's tricky. And so, um, you know, the problem is, it's, is, you know, the New York model of rent control was pretty ineffective. It was basically just if you got lucky and your aunt was in a rent control department, you could move in and you could live like a king, um, yet it didn't provide for affordability more broadly. And so that's the tension and there's a lot of research going on right now. And I have to say, honestly, I'm of two minds on that. I, I, depending on the day, I go back and forth. I understand the need and the, and the motivation for arguing for that, but I also worry deeply about the supply impacts. Hi. Um, by the way, I grew up in a rent control department and my mom still lives there after 60 yep. years. Very affordable. Yes, um, absolutely. How, and this is fascinating talk, how do other countries handle this in countries with way different regulatory environments and social, yep. you know, you know, savings nets and things like that. Sure. And, and obviously much, much different, you know, feelings about private home ownership and, and need for big land and the like. Is it, is it markedly different in other countries? It's markedly different. Uh, you know, the regime in the United States is, so 95% of the housing in the United States is unsubsidized. So 5% of the housing is either public housing or it's tax credit housing or people are using vouchers. So we have a highly, highly commodified housing market in the United States, meaning people are relying on the private market for their housing. So when people accuse me of being a socialist, I say, we could triple our publicly funded housing and go from five to 15 and we would still have a highly, highly commodified housing market. We go to certain jurisdictions in Europe and it's 30%. In the Netherlands, you might live in public housing and everyone's like, okay. It's not like Cabrini Green, people aren't stigmatizing people who live in public housing. There's all sorts of just middle income people living in public housing in the Netherlands. It's just a part of their housing system. And so the problem that we have is the federal government has housing programs that only serve one in four people who are eligible. So let's say, roughly speaking, 12 to 15% of the US population is below the federal poverty line. One in four people who are eligible for housing support get it. The other three quarters are left to fend for themselves. And so you're below the federal poverty line and you're fighting for housing that's all privately delivered. 
the math doesn't work. The fact that we have a homelessness and housing crisis is entirely predictable. It's tragic, but entirely predictable because of the way we structured this. And so people of, of different political persuasions can come to different policy solutions, but the core problem is pretty clear. I gave a talk at Harvard a couple weeks ago and a guy from AEI, American Enterprise Institute, which is a conservative think tank, came up and he said, Greg, I agree 100% with your, um, your diagnosis. He said, I, I disagree completely on the solution, which is fine, but at least if we have agreement across the political spectrum on what the fundamental problem is, then we can figure out where we, sh where we should go. And we can have debates about that. Should we build more? Should we change land use? Should we have more vouchers? Should we build public housing? Whatever. Um, but we have to recognize that the current system is producing an entirely predictable outcome. And that's not true in other, in other countries. Hi, I'm Birgit, and I'm also from Seattle. I uh, live right off of Rainier Great. Avenue. So I have seen tremendous building of public housing and density in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, and Seattle, like I'm sure many other West Coast cities, have also proposed a lot of funding. Probably not anywhere near yep. enough. But so my question is, like there was a proposal by King County to spend 11 billion, quote, end housing or homelessness within five years. How far off are we from what we're spending in Seattle or what's being proposed in other big cities? You know, is this like truly a drop in the bucket or are we really making some reasonable attempt at improvement? Yeah, great question. So um, I think that the $11 billion number you're talking about comes from a McKinsey study that the global consultancy McKinsey came up with a, a study that suggests that we needed about 10 to $11 billion over 10 years to build 30,000 permanent supportive housing units. And that was pre-COVID and so with inflation, it's probably $15 billion now. And so, um, well, if you're in Seattle, you're gonna be voting next month for the Seattle Housing Levy, which is $970 million. And I was on the technical advisory committee for that, and we were debating on how big to, to make it. And, and it's property taxes, so people are gonna pay, I think the number's about $300 uh, a year of additional taxation for that, which I hope everyone votes for it. We desperately need it. My, my role in that, in that committee, and there were probably 25 of us in the room at City Hall was, What's the messaging around this? Because we need 15 or $20 billion. We're gonna raise 970 million. It's not gonna end homelessness. Will it help? Yes, we'll be, we'll be better off because we have it. But that's a tough political message to deliver. Like, I want you to vote for this. I want you to spend more money and also know that this isn't gonna end the problem. And, and you know, we have that problem in Seattle. California has that problem, you know, five, 10 times us. And so I, I wish I had a better answer for you, but yes, the, the dollars are not sufficient. And part of the problem, and this gets back to the last question, is we think of housing as a private good in the United States. So the Puget Sound region just passed $55 billion for transit. And that was a fight, but that's a lot of money. And so I had a meeting with Governor Jay Inslee, Washington's governor recently, and he had read the book and he said, Greg, I, I really like this. I wanna do something really big. I wanna do $4 billion for housing. And I said, Governor, that's, that's great. We desperately need it. We needed it 15 years ago but we did 55 billion for transit. Housing's infrastructure. Housing is infrastructure, just as transit is. And, and insufficient investments in housing will constrain economic activity in a region, without a doubt. But we have not, we just, and it's not just Seattle, it's the entire nation, don't have a sufficient imagination around housing investments because it's just not part of our DNA. It's single family homes, we all own them, white picket fence, that's housing in the United States. And that makes it hard when we have these huge deficits when we need to build hundreds of thousands of units. So you're, you're right, we are building. We're, we've done way better than San Francisco in terms of construction, we have. Uh, but it's still not sufficient to the need, unfortunately. And I believe we have one right here. If we can pass the mic, actually, Jana, then we're gonna have time for one more after that. Thank you for your talk, uh, David Horn. I'm from Washington, D.C. You talked about a lot of the federal overlays and uh, regulatory issues. Um, the federal government is deeply involved, obviously, in funding housing and funding affordable housing and funding homelessness. One of the challenges that they have is that the federal dollar doesn't go as far as, from your chart, the one in Dallas and the one in the Sunbelt, largely because of the Davis-Bacon overlays, which add 50% to affordable housing costs. Mm -hmm. Have you addressed those at all in your book or, or in your discussions with some of the local leaders? Yeah, I, and just so I understand the question, the, the point being that um, depending on the jurisdiction, dollars don't go as far because construction costs, land costs, regulations are all pretty high. Is that kind of the gist? 
Right, but largely labor costs. Yeah, for sure. Fifty percent higher. Absolutely. So you're, you're exactly right, and in this this is true city to city. It's also true from suburb to suburb in the sense that should we be building housing where land is cheaper within a city? That's a separate question. So the labor point here is fundamental, in the sense that land costs are super high in the coast, but labor costs are are significant. So if you're going to build affordable housing in Seattle, you have to pay prevailing wage which is in essence kind of union wage. And so if you're building public housing with, with tax credit, excuse me, affordable housing with tax credits, you have to uh, comply with those rules, which increases your costs. A private developer would not have to do that. So then you say, well, we're also for good wages. And so sometimes as an affordable housing person, you might find yourself advocating for, well, let's just pay the people less and it'll be cheaper. Well, is that good? You know, and so these are really, really difficult issues. The other problem we have is from a labor standpoint, all sorts of people left the trades during the Great Recession because construction basically dried up. There was no financing to do anything. And so now that we've come out of it, what's happened is, is we don't have people to build this housing. So I was with a developer in Seattle, uh, in Seattle who said they were, they were um, flying framers in from St. Louis because they couldn't find anyone. And so you want to talk about expensive? How about flying in framers from St. Louis and paying for their food and hotel and all this stuff while they're, while they're putting up homes in Seattle? So we've actually had meetings with the vocational and technical um, colleges saying we need, to, we need to pair this housing shortage with the need for, for tradespeople. And those are great jobs. I mean, if you come out and you're an electrician or framer or carpenter or whatever, you can build houses until for the rest of your life. And so we really need to backfill um, that type of labor because it's, it's making this problem much, much worse. Good question. Hi. Um, Clark Wakeman from Seattle, Washington. Um, as a long-term housing, affordable housing advocate and uh, designer of the world's only homeless memorial, um, I'm, I'm grateful that you're, that you're addressing a lot of the myths that surround houselessness, yep. um, unsheltered yep. existence. But um, I'm just, I, I look at this also from a perspective as like a historian. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but think the real elephant in the room is um, we're living through a gilded age, the second gilded age. And the underlying issues are so structurally tied to capitalism, quite frankly. And it's particularly acute in Washington State, and I'm glad you've raised kind of a, the tax side of this, because I've also been a tax reform advocate for 30 plus years trying to implement a more progressive tax structure in the most regressively taxed state in the country. And that's a big issue. It becomes a big rub for a lot of the things you're bringing up between this tension between the middle class and uh, unhoused and working class folks that are really struggling. So I, I guess what I just wonder if, if you can broaden that a little bit and maybe address some of those kind of broader issues. Because I, I, I think it's while it's really important to focus on housing as, as fundamental, there's all these other things like Fed policy, uh, asset inflation, all of these other economic drivers that are really, really exacerbating the problem to the point where we're seeing this last year, we go out, I work with a group called Women in Black, and we stand vigil for folks that die on the streets. And we hit over 300 last year, in a, and this is in King County which is a huge number. I mean, when we started standing 22 years ago, we were horrified that there were maybe 10 or 12, now we're over 300. So anyways, I just yeah, thank to you. add that. Uh, um, I, I, I agree completely with, with the broader framing of this. I, what I say to people is, we could have written a book that said, that was called Homelessness is a Poverty Problem. We could have written a book that said that this is an economic inequality problem. We could have written a book that said that this is a racial injustice problem. So clearly this is not the only framing um, that you could uh, present to understand homelessness. Clearly the economic inequality is a major, major 
challenge, especially in a place like Seattle and San Francisco. And it exacerbates the housing market problem. And so we had this question in New York two days ago, and my point was, if you layer huge economic inequality on top of a housing shortage, you end up with a really big problem. Detroit is actually a pretty unequal city. Everything's lower, wages are lower, but the difference between high and low is still pretty significant. What the difference is they have abundant housing. And so it's kind of a vicious cocktail of factors in Seattle. Um, and so some people will challenge me and say, Greg, this is ultimately just a poverty problem. Why are you framing housing? And I'll say, you're, you're right, you're right. But we have an $18 minimum wage, 18 and change in Seattle right now. What minimum wage would we need for people to afford housing in Seattle? 40, 50? The chance of that being passed is zero. And so fundamentally, is there, do we need better wages for people? Absolutely. We also just need housing that's accessible. And so it's, it's a yes and. I completely agree and I appreciate your, your commitment on this issue. And I'm afraid on that note, we have come to the end of our time. Thank you very much, Greg, for being here. Thank you all for being here as well.